Now God gives another example here. He says, "...and the angels who kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day." Now, we have here another tremendous verse, and it opens up to us a truth that you don't get with such clarity in any other section of the Word of God, that there will be a judgment of angels, and that at some time in the past they didn't keep their first estate. That is, God created them with a free will, and they do not reproduce as human beings do. But each one of them created to stand on his own two feet, that is, if they do have two feet, and that some of these spiritual creatures were caught up in a rebellion, and they are reserved in chains. Now, let me just say this, and next time I'm going to go into detail, and I'll have to reserve this until next time. But apparently the fallen angels are divided into two groups. One group are those that evidently their rebellion was so great that they have been locked up, and there's no literal chains on spiritual beings, as we shall see. But the important thing, they are incarcerated. They have no free movement any longer. But another group of them apparently have free movement, and they are under the leadership of Satan. We want to reserve this until next time and talk about this very important matter, because it's coming back even before the public today, because they talk about demon possession. Well, the demons are apparently those fallen angels that were not incarcerated, but they're under Satan. And demon possession apparently is accepted as a reality today by the average person, and we're going through that phase right now. But in this materialistic age, again, the emphasis is upon that which is spiritual. It's amazing. Now, he made it very clear that certain man had come in by the side door into the church among believers. And Jude says, I didn't write this as something new. Other writers had written about it. Peter wrote about it. Paul wrote about it. That these men were coming in and they had an outward appearance of being godly. They were ministers of Satan, but they looked like ministers of light. Inward, as Paul said, they were ravening wolves, but outside they acted like they were sheep, of course. And the test of the men finally came because they were turning the grace of our God into wantonness, that is, of arrogant sin and gross immorality and they denied the Lord Jesus Christ. This was the mark. Now he gives instances of how God has judged in the past, and he gives, first of all, three groups of people. Later on, he's going to give us three individuals, but here are three groups, and we saw Israel last time. Because of unbelief, they could not enter the land and they were judged. 
Now, we find in verse 6, where we got to last time, angels rebelled, and they're kept in chain, and God will also judge them. Now, I want to read again today this verse, "...and the angels who kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness." unto the judgment of the great day. Now, may I say that the judgment of angels here is something that is not new either. It is something that had been mentioned before. But before I get into that, I would like to say just a word relative to the fact of angels. Now, for a long time, the church was denying the supernatural, denied that there were any such creatures at all. Actually, many ministers denied that. We're living in a materialistic age, and the viewpoint was that we were going to get rid of God altogether, that we didn't need him. And certainly, the idea of angels is just a superstition. And it was Huxley who said that the belief in God was like the fading smile of a Cheshire cat, that it was disappearing in this scientific age. And back in 1963, Ben Heck wrote, and I'm going to give you just an excerpt from a little article he wrote on the new God for the space age. Will you listen to just these first few paragraphs here? He says, "...the most amazing event to enter modern history has been generally snubbed by our chroniclers. It is the petering out of Christianity. Not only are the Bible stories going by the board, but a deeper side of religion seems to be exiting. This is the mystic concept of the human soul and its survival after death. Parsons are still preaching away on this topic and congregations are still listening. But congregation and parson both seem to move from church to museum. Fifty years ago, religion was an exuberant part of our world. Its sermons, bazaars, tag days, taboos, and exhortations filled the press. Its rituals brought a glow to our citizenry. At their supper tables, a large part of the voting population bowed its head and said grace. Religion today is a touchy subject, not because people believe deeply and are ready to defend such belief with emotion, but because they do not want to hear it discussed. They do not know quite how they feel, and they do not know what to say about God, His angels, and the record of His miracles, not wanting to sound anti-Christian or anti-social or anti-anything, not under general condemnation, they settle for silence. In this silence, more than in all the previous agnostic hullabaloo's religion seems swiftly disappearing. Now, that was back in 1963, and if Ben Heck was here today, he'd note that there's been a tremendous revival. Now, liberalism has been predicting for years the death knell of the church, and of that, of course, which is supernatural. Here's a little article that a professor of ethics at the University of Chicago 
Divinity School, and his name is Gibson Winner. He wrote the book, The Suburban Captivity of the Church. And he has this to say about it. He says, U.S. Protestantism, once famous for its diversity, is homogenizing into what is almost a new faith, and if it continues in its present direction, it will be stone-cold dead in a couple of dozen years. Now, I could quote you ad nauseum what liberals said a few years ago. For instance, one man, again, at the Chicago Theological Seminary made the statement that Protestantism has gotten so prosperous statistically that it has lost all internal discipline whatsoever. It looks frightfully confining from the outside, but on the inside it has no discipline, no integrity. Now, that was the picture they gave, and of course it's the picture of the liberal church. And by the way, it certainly has almost gone by the board. But today there's been a revival of that which is the supernatural. And it's quite interesting that the revival didn't come in a church. It didn't come even among the fundamentalists. It came on the campuses of some of the colleges, and especially the campuses of some colleges that a few years ago that were blatantly materialistic and denied anything of the supernatural at all. Now today, they're talking about demonism, and they're talking about Satan, and they actually are talking about God and the Bible, so that the supernatural all of a sudden has appeared again, and angels today seem to make sense even in a space age. And so in this day, men and women are concerned as they look about at a world of materialism that has gone crazy. We know how to get to the moon, but we do not know how to control human nature down here on this earth. And one of the great problems is taking place right here in Southern California. A paper that's a reputable paper here in Southern California came out with the fact that Los Angeles is becoming an armed city because of the gangs that roam the streets. And they are free to roam the streets, the article said. And good people, that is law-abiding people, are in prison in their homes, afraid to venture out. And Los Angeles is an armed camp. May I say to you, the thing that happened a few years ago was, in this materialistic age, we said human nature's gotten better. It's been improved, and we don't need all of these laws. And the lid was taken off. And my friend, we found out, instead of it being a bucket of perfume, it just happened to be a bucket of slop, a bucket of filth, a bucket of garbage, and the vile and unspeakable crimes that have been committed, unbelievable immoralities taken place. And the questions being asked, where does all this vileness, where does all this evil come from? And so they need the devil. As somebody has put it, if there wasn't the devil, 
Man would have to invent one to explain all the evil that's in the world today. In other words, humanity is depraved. You and I don't seem to realize that we belong to a race that's totally depraved. And in a world under the control of Satan today, and we think that by removing all the laws and restraints which have been, that we would produce a wonderful free society. Well, instead of that, men now are returning back actually to the supernatural. And unfortunately, the great emphasis has been upon evil spirits because they have to have something to explain them. Well, the Bible has something to say about it. Bible, you see, is very much up to date, friends. And here in the sixth verse, we have a remarkable statement. And the angels who kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness, under the judgment of the great day. Now, the Word of God has a great deal to say about the judgment that is coming upon this earth. And friends, instead of there going to be one judgment day, that is rather naive. And of course, those without a knowledge of the Bible talk about a big judgment day, the great judgment day. Well, the great white throne judgment is coming in the future for the unsaved, but there are actually eight judgments that are mentioned in the Word of God. And one of those judgments is the judgment of angels. And that judgment, of course, will take place sometime during the kingdom reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have a passage over in 1 Corinthians 15:24, and I want to turn there and read. He says here, he gives the order of the resurrection, Christ the firstfruits, and afterward they that are Christ that is coming... Now, verse 24, "...then cometh the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule, all authority, and all power." That is, this evil power, the demonic forces that are in the world. "...for he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet." So, during the millennium, these demonic powers will be judged. And then the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. Now, the Scripture has a great deal to say about this judgment of angels. And I'd like to turn to several passages that refer to it. Over in 1 Corinthians 6, 3, we're told, "...know ye not that we shall judge angels, how much more things that pertain to this life." Now, that's something I wouldn't have known if Paul hadn't told us that we are going to have part in that, and I think it'll be during the millennial reign of Christ on earth when we are with him as believers. And I think that he'll commute back and forth to the new Jerusalem where the church is. That'll be the eternal home of the church. And so during that time, there will be a judgment of angels. Though we're created lower than they are, someday we will have part in the judgment of them. Now, in 2 Peter 2, 4, we have another reference here that corresponds to that of Jude. For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell, and the word hell here actually, of course, means Hades, 
It's the place of the unsaved and delivered them in the chains of darkness to be reserved under judgment. Now, that leads me to make this statement here concerning our passage here that says that they are reserved in everlasting chains under darkness under the judgment of the great day. Now, if you think that this has reference to chains that has links in it, then forget it, because these angels are spiritual creatures, and it'd be pretty difficult to put a chain on one of them. The word is bonds. Actually, they're going to be, frankly, heavily guarded. And again, I'm going to turn to Dr. Weiss's translation that he's given. He says, "...and angels who did not carefully guard their original position of preeminent dignity, but abandon once for all their own private dwelling place with a view to the judgment of the great day in everlasting bonds under darkness, he has put under careful guard." Now, this company of angels are awaiting a judgment that apparently will come during the kingdom age. Now, another group of these fallen angels are the demons that are abroad today in the world. And demonic power, of course, is a reality. But may I say that all of this emphasis today, it's being overplayed, and actually there's not near the manifestation of demonic power at present as we are led to believe. All of this thing has been built up to a very high pitch, but the fact is that if 90% of it is phony, and I think that a good percentage is phony, what about the other 10% or how much ever it is? You're sure going to have trouble explaining that away. And that's the reason that that play, The Exorcist, got under the skin of so many people, is that here was an example of the forces of evil that are in the world. And that was nothing in the world but a movie, and there's no reason for you to go there and faint, because all you're doing is to seeing actors act. That's all that is. But the thing is, it's based upon a factual case, one that actually took place. And there are cases like that, but there's not near as much as a great many people are led to believe. And again, may I say that there are other references. Here in Jude, we have this reference. And then over in the 20th chapter of Revelation at verse 10, it says, "...and the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and false prophet are." and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now, this is a reference to actually hell. It's the lake of fire. And now, if you want to argue literal fire, all right. But it's more literal than fire, and it's worse than fire. Fire is a very weak symbol for how terrible it's going to be. After all, these are spiritual beings here that are mentioned. And the devil doesn't get there first. Great many people think the devil is in hell today. Instead of that, he's very busy in Los Angeles. Probably he's busy in your town. And he has quite a few helpers, both supernatural and natural. There are a lot of folk that are helping him out today. 
Now, there is coming a time when this creature is going to be put out. We're told over in the 12th chapter of Revelation at verse 7, there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought and his angels and prevail not, neither was there any place found any more in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, and his angels were cast out with him, so that the earth is to be cleansed of this crew that's been abroad in the earth for a long time, and they are to be judged. Now, they are to be judged because of the fact that sometime in the past, probably in a pre-Adamic age, there was a rebellion on the part of the angels against God. Now, I'm just hitting this lightly, because when we get to the book of Revelation, we'll be dealing in detail with many of these great truths that are here. So, I'm going to pass along now to the next that is mentioned here, and that's in verse 7, and I'll read our authorized version. Even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh, are set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Now, these cities were judged, so much so that they probably are buried there today beneath the dead sea. It's the belief today that they've located them. I do not know whether they have or not. I'm not sure that that's too important for the child of God. But it was their defiled flesh. They were given over to homosexuality. Of course, that's sodomy, but that's called homosexuality today. And adultery has been changed to free love. And the drunkard is a respected alcoholic and the murderer is temporarily insane, and Satan is doing a good job today indoctrinating the world with a new vocabulary. But may I say to you, this was the vilest sin of all, gross immorality. They sometimes call it the new morality, but it goes back to Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, God has judged men in the past for the sins in sensuality. And it's a warning. All this is given to us as a warning that God will judge any civilization. doesn't make any difference what it is that goes too far in this direction. And we're sure moving in that direction today. Now, friends, we've come down to verse 8 here in the little epistle of Jude. And I sometimes say chapter 1, but actually there's only one chapter here, so you can say chapter 1, verse 8, or just say verse 8, because there'll not be another verse 8 in the epistle of Jude, that is for sure. Now, he's going to identify for us again these apostate teachers. In verse 4, he told us something about them, that they were ungodly men that had already been written about by the other apostles, and that they were ungodly men. That is, that they left God out of their lives. They turned the grace of our God into wantonness. They went into actually what could be called arrogant sin, 
or arrogant immorality. That is, they flaunted it before the world. Then they also denied the Lord Jesus Christ. That is, who he is and what he's done for us. Now, we are told something else about them. Here are some other ways to identify them. He says, "...in like manner also these filthy dreamers defile the flesh, despise dominion, and speak evil of dignities." Now, there are four points of identification here that he gives to us. And again, these are the ones that we're to beware of. As he puts it back in verse 4, they crept in unawares. That is, they came in sideways. They came in the side door. They slipped into the church. They came in under false colors. Their credentials and their creed were not the same. They pretended to be something that they were not. Now he identifies them further. The word filth, if you notice, is in italics, and it actually is not in the better manuscripts. You can leave it out. We don't need it. They're dreamers. That is, they live in an unreal world, a world that does not exist. My feeling is that the liberal has never dealt really with reality. It's rather romantic. It sounds good on paper. It's nice to be able to solve all your problems by positive thinking. But there's a lot of power in negative thinking also. We need some folk that learn how to say no as well as say yes. And we need to recognize also that these are dreamers in the sense that they will not face up to reality. They do not do it at all. This was something that I took out years ago of the woman's home companion. My wife took it, and I saw this in it, and I clipped it out. And this must have been 15 years ago, because it goes back to a group of liberals that have since disappeared from the scene. There's a new crop, however, abroad in the land. I'm going to read this editorial. It says, A pledge... And the pledge is this, to have no part in any war has been taken by a large body of leading Protestant clergymen in the East. Among them are some of the wisest and most influential ministers we have, men such as Fosdick, Holmes, and Sockman in New York City, for example. This covenant of peace group declares that war settles no issues, is futile and suicidal, and is a denial of God and the teachings of Christ. It asserts that the chain of evil which holds us to war can and must be broken now. Now, here's the comment. This is a noble doctrine. However, much events may lead us to differ with it when these bold and sincere men stand in their pulpits and preach this rejection of all war, let us remember that these clergymen by their record have earned the right to their belief in a great democracy. The suppression of the clergy in war and peace can never justly become an instrument of policy as it has under the dictators. 
Now, they call it a noble doctrine, but one that they couldn't agree with. May I say that that was carried over recently in the Vietnam War? It got us in a great deal of difficulty. That type of thinking and these protest meetings that it inspired in this country prolonged the war and actually led to the killing of a great many more American boys that would not have been killed. The very fact that they talked as they did about peace and that type of thing. Now, may I say to you, that is to not realize we live in a big, bad world, and that reality is something that you have to rub your nose into it. It's something that you just can't ignore. Even these steel-belted tires today have to get down and go over the rough places, and some of them go flat, by the way, so that these men are dreamers. They are dealing with that which is not real at all. It's nice for them to say that, as long as we have a big navy and as long as we have atom bombs. It's nice to sit back in the cloister of the church and be able to make brave statements like this. But it just doesn't work out. I have a notion that these same men, if they were around and the new crop that are around, I have a notion that they stay out of the ghetto and the other places at night, although they may talk very bravely in the daytime. I observe that one church that I know of that boasted of how they wanted to work among the minority groups, well, they've closed the church that was down in a minority group, and I think they made a big mistake in doing it, by the way. Now, these men are dreamers, and for that reason, they have gotten into the church, and they use the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Imagine making the statement here that this is a denial of the teachings of Christ to have war. Well, he made the statement that a strong man armed keepeth his house. That's the way you're going to protect your own, is by being armed. And he also said that a king that's going to war, he's going to sit down and figure out. He didn't say it was wrong to figure out. He said he better figure out. And if he's smart, he will figure out how he's going to carry on that war. May I say to you that it's just a failure to face up to what the Lord Jesus Christ really taught, you see. You and I are living in a world, and he told his disciples when he sent them out one time, to preach, that they were to take nothing with them, not even a pocketbook. Now, when they return and they're to go to the ends of the earth, he says, now, I want to tell you, be sure and take your pocketbook and all your American Express and diner's cards and all your gasoline cards, better take them with you. And also, it might be well to have a sword, now, he said. You'll need a sword to protect yourself. May I say to you, what nonsense. These are dreamers that talk like this. It sounds good. This matter of saying, I don't want to have part in war. All of us can say that. That's sort of like mother and apple pie and the flag. We're all for it, you see. It's all great to have no part in war. But we've got to face up to reality also. Now, that's a deception, you see, that they bring. And it's nice to 
preach that to a well-heeled crowd on Sunday morning when there's no war and everything seems peaceable. I know that's really a nice thing to give. Then the second thing about them, they defile the flesh. You notice that they defile the flesh. And that is something to note. That is, they engage in base and abnormal immorality. That is the thing that he has in mind here. That is the strange flesh that he was talking about in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. You see that God judged the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. And also the angels are a warning because they're going to be judged. They are help for judgment. And God would not let even his own people that he brought out of Egypt enter the promised land because of unbelief. So that these are examples to us today. And we better recognize the fact that God will judge this new, not morality, but it's not new immorality either. In fact, there's nothing new about it. It goes back to Sodom and Gomorrah, goes back to the days of Noah. Now, also, it says they despise dominion. That means they reject authority. That is the crowd that wants to get rid of the death penalty. That's the crowd that wants to come up with something that turns everybody loose and you do your thing in your own way. And we're seeing what is taking place. Society is broken out like a cancer in the body politic. We thought we were a civilized people. while we are nothing in the world but a group of savages the way that things are moving. Now, it's because of this matter of despising dominion. That is to reject authority. We want certain laws repealed. We don't want divorce. There's no reason to have these divorce laws. Let's just let them stop living together. And that is something that breaks right across the morality of any nation for the home is the bedrock of any people. And then the fourth thing is, we're told here, and I read it, they speak evil of dignities. Now, that means they disrespect dignities. That is, they protest against rules and those in authority. In other words, they take it out on the police as they represent authority. Or they take it out upon men in high positions, the president and the governors and the mayors. They are made responsible for anything that happens in the nation or the state or the city, regardless of whether they're responsible or not. Why? Because there's been a loss of respect for authority today. Now, I grant you that some of them haven't been worthy of the respect But the office certainly demands respect, and he's going to give an example of that. But now let's notice again these apostates that have come into the church. They came in the side door. They are ungodly. They've turned the grace of God into lasciviousness. They denied the Lord Jesus Christ, and they're dreamers, and they defile the flesh. They despise dominion. They have disrespect for dignities. 
And that is the thing that characterizes them. And they're dangerous because of the way they come in. For ten long and weary years, the Greeks laid siege to the city of Troy. But they did not make a dent on the fortifications, and they seemed impregnable. They could not make an entrance to the city. And then there came forth a suggestion, and the suggestion was to build a wooden horse and leave it outside the gate, but have some soldiers concealed inside and then pretend to sail away. And so they made the wooden horse, soldiers were put inside, and the wooden horse was put by the gate of the city of Troy. Well, curiosity got the best of them. When they saw the Greeks sailing away, they thought the war was over. Then they went out, saw the horse, decided to pull it inside the city. It was certainly a novelty, something to have. And then that night, the soldiers that were on the inside, why, they climbed out, and they were able to unlock the gates of the city from the inside. And in the meantime, under cover of darkness, the fleet of Greek ships returned, and they had only pretended to sail away. And what an entire army of mighty men could not do from the outside in ten years, a few soldiers did from the inside. And you see, that's the way the church has been harmed today and taken over by liberalism. Actually, the church has never been harmed from the outside. Persecution caused it to grow by leaps and bounds. And today we are witnessing the destruction of the church from the inside. It's an inside job. And Christ was betrayed from the inside to the outside. Have you ever noticed that? One of his own betrayed him over to his nation. His nation betrayed him over to the Romans, and the Romans brought him to the cross. That's the way the church is being betrayed today. How? These are the ones that have gotten in. Now, as we've already indicated, what was a little cloud the size of a man's hand is now a raging storm that's lashing across the church, casting up foam and fury today. And we need to hang out this epistle as a storm warning because the apostasy is here in our midst today. Now, I say this not with any great joy or with any feeling of bitterness, but I make it as a statement of fact. All the great denominations of the past are largely gone. They have departed from the faith probably never to return. They've gone into never-never land. As far as I know, there's no record of a church or an organization or an institution having once departed from the faith ever returning. Now, I'm told there have been some individuals that have. I do not know any of them, but this is a sad thing. Actually, the Wesley movement that began back in England. It was a come-out movement. It was begun when the church became cold and indifferent in that day. And the church of Wesley 
became a warm incubator to reproduce life. But I'm sorry to say that in many places it's a deep freeze that preserves the outward form of Wesley, but does not have the warmth and the life that was there. Now, other new movements have arisen. And in the past, like great waves, they brought revival into the church. And I'm very frank to say that I do not think fundamentalism as it is today is the answer. I don't feel that it is. I've recently perceived a real weakness, which I think will ultimately undermine even fundamentalism. That is simply this. It's been exact and precise in doctrine, but it's been devoid in many cases of ethics and morals. There are no high principles and practices. There's been a moral breakdown outside in contemporary society, but unfortunately it's mirrored in our conservative churches today. I was with a group some time ago, and they used me a great deal, and they're a fine group. But this is an illustration of what I mean. They're insistent and even belligerent about doctrine and separation. And it was called to their attention that one in their midst was guilty of immorality. And actually, they defended him and the ethical practices of another individual in his community. They smelt a high heaven, but he's supposed to be a fundamentalist. May I say to you, they took a whole hum attitude. Unfortunately, today, that has hurt the cause of Christ a great deal because it's come from the inside. Now, we're going to see in this epistle, what can believers do in days like this? Now, it may be that there's some that are listening in and saying, Preacher, you're really being sensational, and aren't you exaggerating just a little bit? I don't think I am, friends, at all. In fact, I'm not sure but what I'm giving this in low key to you today. I'd like to pass on to you a study that was made and statements that have been made by liberal preachers that are right today in pulpits. Out of a poll of 700 preachers recently, the following results were given. 48% denied the complete inspiration of the Bible. 24% rejected the atonement. 12% rejected the resurrection of the body. And 27% did not believe that Christ will return. A certain minister in Washington, D.C., I'm not sure, but what, he's still there. He says, we liberal clergymen are no longer interested in the fundamental modernist controversy. We do not believe we should even waste our time engaging in it. So far as we are concerned, it makes no difference whether Christ was born of a virgin or not. We don't even bother to form an opinion on the subject. And then over in Arlington, Virginia, that's across the river, there was a minister there. He says, we've closed our minds to such trivial consideration as the question of the resurrection of Christ. If you fundamentalists wish to believe that nonsense, we have no objection, but we have more important things to preach than the presence or absence 
of an empty tomb 20 centuries ago. And another minister in Washington, D.C., said flatly, in our denomination, what you call the faith of our fathers is approaching total extinction. Of course, a few of the older ministers still cling to the Bible, but among the younger men, the real leaders of our denomination today, I do not know a single one who believes in Christ or any of the things that you classify as fundamentals. Now, my friend, have I exaggerated? Have I overstated the case of whether we're in the apostasy or not? And whether there are certain men that have crept in, that means they're creeps, by the way, they have crashed in the side door. Notice what is told here in verse 9. Yet Michael, the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a railing accusation, but said, The Lord rebuked thee. Now this, to my judgment, is one of the most unusual verses in Scripture. Now, I'm not going in any detail about Satan. Satan and demons we're going to save till we get to the book of Revelation, and I intend to go into a great deal of detail about the creation of Satan, the character of Satan, the cosmos of Satan, the conflict with Satan, and the conclusion of his career. We'll look at that. But he was a creature of God and apparently the highest creature that God created. And then evil was found in him. Now, don't think that evil meant that at that time he was going out and steal something. The evil that was in him was that he put his will against the will of God. He was lifted up by pride, and he wanted to become independent of God. That was the thing that he attempted to do and actually thought he could dethrone God in certainly part of his universe. As far as this world is concerned, God has permitted him to carry on this rebellion. And God has a high and holy purpose in it, but this creature still believes he'll be able to take a segment of God's created universe and that it will be under him. And I'm sure this earth is that which he wants as part of his. Now, he did not want Moses to be buried there. And the reason was that Moses was to be raised to enter into the promised land. You remember to appear at the Mount of Transfiguration along with Elijah. So when the angel buried Moses there, we're told Michael the archangel was in contention with the devil, and he disputed about the body of Moses. Now, he dared not bring against him a railing accusation. He didn't curse him. He didn't call him a long list of names. And I'm sure that many of us would have been perfectly willing to have done that. We really would have read the riot act to him. But Michael didn't. And you know why? Michael's an archangel. But all he did, he said, the Lord rebuke you. And he didn't go into a long tirade of epithets, of condemnation. He could have. Why? He had respect unto his office, his position. 
He'd been created the highest creature. You and I need to learn that. We haven't learned it. A great many believers have not learned to bow to God, even. My friend, you and I are creatures. He's the creator. What right have you and I, really, to question anything that he does? Now, don't misunderstand me. If you think I piously accept everything that comes my way, you're wrong. I talk back to him many times. Now, I want to know why he lets this happen to me and why this took place and all that sort of thing. Maybe you do that. But we need to recognize that God is the Creator. He's also our Redeemer. He's also the one who loves us. But our God is high, holy, and lifted up. And He's a just, righteous God. He never makes any mistakes. He never does anything wrong. Everything He does is right. And you and I can trust Him. But do we do that? Do we respect His authority? Respect this person. How about the Lord Jesus Christ? He is going to say in that day, You said, Lord, Lord, but you didn't do the things I commanded you. Each one went his own way, did that which is right in his own eye. And that's mankind. That's the picture of the world. How about you and how about me today? What a lesson Michael the archangel is. Now we have here an unusual statement. And I'm just going to pass on to you now what I have in my notes, because all of you do not have these notes, and you certainly need them. And this is my note on verse 9. It says, This is a most remarkable verse. Satan is a fallen creature and an avowed enemy of God. Yet Michael, when contending about the body of Moses, would not bring a sentence that would impugn the dignity of Satan. Michael even respected the position of Satan. Clement, and he was one of the early church fathers, he quotes from an apocryphal writing dealing with the funeral of Moses. And when Michael was commissioned to bury Moses, Satan opposed it on the grounds that since he was the master of the material and matter, the body belonged to him. Michael's only answer was, The Lord, that is the Creator, rebuke thee. Satan also brought the charge of murder against Moses. Also, it suggested that Satan wanted to hinder the latter appearance of Moses at the Mount of Transfiguration. Now, that verse reads, Yet Michael the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a railing accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke thee. And I think I ought to pass on to you what Dr. Weiss gives to us as his translation. And as you know, I'm quoting him many times. He has a very fine translation. Listen to this. Yet Michael, the archangel, when disputing with the devil, arguing concerning the body of Moses, dared not bring a sentence that would impugn his dignity, but said, May the Lord rebuke you. Now, we have here in the next verse, and in all of these are remarkable verses, but these, now who are these? The certain men that crept in unawares, the apostates that have come into the church, but these speak evil of those things which they know not, 
but what they know naturally as brute beasts, in those things they corrupt themselves. Now, I'd like, as best I can, to make this verse understandable to you because it's another one of the important verses in this epistle. Now, to begin with, when he says, these speak evil, the word in the Greek is blasphemio. And blasphemio, our English word by transliteration, is blaspheme. They actually blaspheme. These speak evil. They blaspheme those things which they know not, but that which they know naturally. Now, there are two different words used for know. And without knowing that, by the way, it's difficult to know exactly what Jude means here. Now, the first know is oida. And that speaks of mental comprehension and knowledge. And that's the meaning that Vincent gives. And it refers to the whole range of invisible things. You know, knowledge is not confined to what you pour in a test tube or look at under a microscope. A great many people think that is true. But actually, the finer things of life today are things you can't put under the microscope. You just can't pour them in a test tube. How about a wonderful piece of music today? What happens to it when you stick it down in a test tube or look at it under the microscope? May I say that it needs to be translated into sound, and the ear needs to hear it. You can't see it at all. It's actually invisible. Love is invisible. You couldn't put love under the microscope. How about faith? You can't put it under the microscope. My friends, there are a great many things I know, and I know it without any proof of taking it to the laboratory. Now, as Spurgeon put it, no one has to tell me that honey is sweet. I know that. A lot of things that I know and you know that you can't put under the test tube. And so that word here, they speak of that which they don't know. And this Washington preacher, he thought he was very brilliant by saying that he no longer believed in the resurrection. May I say to you that there are a lot of things he doesn't know, many things that he does not know. But now the next word is epistomai. And that means to understand. And Vincent says that it was originally used of skill and handicraft and refers to palpable things, objects of sense, the circumstances of sensual enjoyment. Now, here is where you pour things in the test tube. They only know what they can handle, what they can see. That is all that these folk know. This is the word that is here. And they're like brute beasts in those things. Because after all, a brute beast only knows about the hay or the grass or the corn or another animal that it can eat. And that is that which they know by instinct. The ducks, you know, in the wintertime when it's fall of the year, they're up in Canada. They're having a nice summer up there. And all of a sudden, they take off. Somebody says, boy, are they smart. Those ducks know that before long, it'll be winter, and that snow will be on the ground, and the lake's going to freeze over, and they take off for the south. They go all the way down into Central America. 
and to Mexico. They go down there. They're very smart. No, they're not. They just move just like a beast, just like a bird moves. There's no comprehension, no understanding. And this generation that thinks it's so smart today because it only believes what it can pour in a test tube is a poor generation. They don't understand anything that a brute beast couldn't understand. They have not reached the higher plane of knowledge of what Paul called epigonosco. Paul says you can know that the Bible is the Word of God. You can know that Jesus is the Savior of the world. Now, these, just knowing physical things, they think they know everything that can be known. They corrupt themselves. That's the picture of the apostates. Now, he says, woe unto them. And the word here for woe is the word ooi. And these that speak evil, it's woe unto them. For they've gone in the way of Cain, and they ran greedily after the era of Balaam for reward, and they perished in the gainsaying of Korah. Now, we've had these three before us back in Second Peter. We'll have them before us again in Revelation as examples. But in each case, it's a different example. Now, we are told here, and the word woe here is ooi. The word itself denotes grief or a denunciation. And here it's the latter. It's a denunciation. Woe to these. And they have gone here, we're told, they've gone first in the way of Cain, and they've gone greedily after the era of Balaam for reward and perished in the gainsaying of Kor. Now, the first one of Cain, he was a religious man but a natural man. He believed in God. He believed in religion, but he did it after his own will. He rejected redemption by blood, and he will come his own way to God. That's the picture of the apostate today. Actually, the man calls himself a liberal and a modernist. Well, my friend, this is old as the Garden of Eden. Right outside the Garden of Eden, Cain was a modernist. He was a liberal. He believed in religion and God. But may I say to you, he did it his way, not God's way. Now, you'll notice that we have mentioned here in the epistle of Jude the way of Cain. And we are told here that the way of Cain characterizes an apostate who is religious, but who denies he's a sinner. And therefore, he denies the redemption that there is in Christ. And for Cain, he refused to bring a lamb, as Abel did. And what we're told in Hebrews 11:4 certainly tells the story. By faith, Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and by it he being dead yet speaketh. Well, Cain's dead also, and he speaks, because right here the way of Cain is the way of a man who refused to bring a little lamb that pointed to Christ. In other words, he did not come to God by faith. 
He did not believe God when he said that man was to bring a little lamb or a sacrifice, and that without shedding of blood there's no forgiveness of sins, that the penalty must be paid. Cain just didn't believe that, you see. Now we are told here another man, Balaam, and then we have Korah. You remember we were given here first three examples of apostates, and they were groups. There were three, the children of Israel, and then the angels, and then Sodom and Gomorrah, two cities. Now we are given another three by way of illustration, and there are three individuals. The way of Cain is one. Then we have, and they ran greedily after the heir of Balaam for reward, and they perished in the gainsaying of Korah. Now you have here, relative to Balaam, that they ran greedily after the error of Balaam. Now we have in Second Peter the way of Balaam, and in Jude we have the error of Balaam, and in Revelation we have the doctrine of Balaam. Now the way of Balaam in Second Peter was actually the thing that was the undermining of the man. That is, he was covetous, and that's idolatry. And he was the hired preacher, and he wanted to make a buck for the gift that he had, apparently a God-given gift. And this is the way of Balaam that's mentioned in Second Peter, and it's his undoing. You see, a man can seek for something other than just money, however, He can seek prominence for popularity, for fame, for applause, and for position. There are many things that would put him in the way of Balaam, and this was the way of Balaam, you see. But his was money, of course. Actually, I don't think there are too many ministers that are interested in money. I've met very few that I thought were interested in money. But this man, he ran greedily. They do after the heir of Balaam for reward. And it may be that I don't know enough liberal preachers is the reason that I do not think there are many. But this marks the apostate, of course, and perished in the gainsaying of Korah. Probably before I should mention that, since I mentioned the way of Balaam in Second Peter and the era of Balaam in this epistle of Jude, And you have the doctrine of Balaam in Revelation, and we'll be coming to that, of course, later on. But you find the story of Balaam back in the book of Numbers, the 25th chapter, and he could not curse Israel. And he told Balak that by sending the Moabite women into the camp of Israel, he'd bring about fornication and the introduction of idolatry into the homes through mixed marriages. And you can be sure of one thing from Genesis to Revelation, God warns against the intermarriage of believers and unbelievers. You can't condone those on any basis whatsoever. Unfortunate that too many young people are not warned of that today because a great deal of unhappiness has come. We have literally hundreds of letters that testify to that. But actually here, the error of this man Balaam was 
that he is not seeking money here, but his error was that he thought God would have to punish Israel for their sins. He did not recognize that there is a morality that is above natural morality. He thought a righteous God had to curse Israel. And the morality of the cross, he was totally unaware of it. And it's in the Old Testament that God can maintain and does enforce his authority and all of that. But he can be just and the justifier of a believing sinner. And this nation, when they turn to God, God would forgive them. And today it's difficult sometimes for somebody to understand how you can be converted I know that when I worked in a bank and I was led to Christ and wanted to study for the ministry, my friends there, and I would say most of them were church members, they couldn't understand how I could study for the ministry. And by the way, they had ample reason to wonder about that. They couldn't understand that God had forgiven me, that I had a new life. Now, they just didn't believe that. They didn't believe it because they couldn't understand it. And that was the problem that Balaam had, you see. Now, let me come to the gainsaying of Korah. Now, what is the gainsaying here of Korah? Well, you will recall that he led a rebellion against Moses. He came to the conclusion that Moses wasn't the only one around that had access to God. You find that story in the book of Numbers, chapter 16. And this man had rebelled against God's constituted authority, which was Moses. And he wanted to intrude into the thing that was sacred. Has God only spoken to Moses? Who does Moses think that he is? Well, Moses didn't think too much of himself, that he had any undue qualification. In fact, he wanted to disqualify himself as the leader out of Egypt. But God had called him, and this man Korah rebels against him, which means that he contradicted the authority of Moses, and he intruded into the office of priests, and he died. In other words, he was a rebellious man, rebelling against God. And that characterizes the apostates, you see. Now, here are three individuals, and notice the thing that the apostate has that these three individuals in the Old Testament had. Cain did not believe that you needed to come to God by faith and needed a bloody sacrifice because man's a sinner. He just believed if you had a religion, that was all. The apostate goes along with that. The error of Balaam is that a holy God must punish sin, and therefore God would have to punish Israel and that sinners couldn't be forgiven. And these make the mistake. They say, how in the world can the sacrifice of Christ save anyone? A man's got to do this himself. And then they rebel against God as Korah did. They assume an authority that is not theirs. Stand in the pulpit and give out politics instead of giving out the Word of God. Instead of telling what God says... They tell people what they say and what they think. A man said to me some time ago, 
He said, I have dropped out of my church. I asked him, why? Well, he said, I'm tired of listening to a preacher give political economy and also attempt to stand in the position actually of being an authority on government. Well, he says he assumes that he has all knowledge and he never uses the Word of God. He never tells what God says or what God thinks. And he said, I'm tired of listening to it. Well, that man apparently, in that man's church, I know nothing about it, but I assume that he's an apostate. He has the mark of an apostate. Now, these three men illustrate that for us today. Now, beginning with verse 12 here, and going through verse 16, these modern apostate teachers are defined and described. And you will not find anywhere language more vivid, more graphic, more dramatic, more frightening than the description that's given here of the apostates in the last days. Now, I'm reading verse 12, and you listen to this. These are spots in your love feasts. When they feast with you, feeding themselves without fear, clouds they are without water, carried about by winds, trees whose fruit withereth without fruit, twice dead, plucked up by the roots. Now, here is without doubt one of the most vivid descriptions that's given of these men that's possible to find anywhere. And I think probably that I ought to read you the translation that Dr. Wiest has, because it's quite vivid itself. And I want to share that with you now. I'm reading his. These are the hidden rocks in your love feasts, sumptuously feasting with you without fear, as shepherds leading themselves to pasture, waterless clouds carried past by winds, autumn trees without fruit, having died twice, rooted up. Now, what a picture that you have here. Now, there are spots in our translation, but you'll notice that the translation we have here is hidden rocks, and that is the picture. They're hidden rocks that wreck a ship, and they make what Paul called the shipwreck of the faith, that many said it made shipwreck of the faith. They evidently ran into an apostate, hidden rocks that wreck a ship. In other words, an apostate is merely the tip of an iceberg. Actually, you see, but very little. But if you bump into it and the ship runs into it, the ship will go to the bottom of the sea. And how many, especially young people today, whose faith has been not only shaken, but in many cases wrecked by this type of teaching. I wouldn't want to be in the position of a person like that. Now, they attend the love feasts. Now, these love feasts were held in the early church before the communion service. They came there and they shared a meal together. Well, these apostates came in and they had a ravenous appetite. They could eat more than anyone else. 
And they did it without any fear at all. They would feast, feeding themselves without fear. In other words, shepherds are supposed to feed the flock. Well, as shepherds, they fed themselves. I think Milton aptly described this situation when he wrote about his friend Lysias, and it's in the poem, Lysias, where this young preacher who was a real expositor to the Word was drowned crossing the Irish Channel. And Milton grieved about the young man. And he told about the situation in England, even in his day, that the hungry sheep look up and are not fed. What a picture of an apostate in the pulpit. He feeds himself, but he's not feeding the flock at all, not giving them the Word of God. And they're clouds without water. In other words, they wear robes and they speak in a very pompous, pontifical voice. They speak with authority. They've had a public speaking course and they've had a course in homiletics and they know how to spiritualize a text of Scripture and make it mean entirely something different than God intended it to mean. They look like they're filled with the Word of God, but they're empty and dry. Beautiful clouds that go over. I can remember chopping cotton as a boy in southern Oklahoma in summertime and the clouds that go over. Oh, how this boy prayed for rain so I wouldn't have to chop cotton. But there wasn't any rain in those clouds. They were just snowy white, nothing in the world but puffs of white. They were just heads of clouds. That's all in the world that they were. And there was no water in them at all. Well, these do not have the water of life. They know nothing about the Word of God, actually. And then they're described as trees without fruit. Remember, the Lord Jesus says, "...by their fruits ye shall know them." Well, these old boys, they don't even have any fruit. How are you going to judge them? Well, when they don't have any fruit, that's the worst kind of fruit of all. And he says here concerning them, twice dead, plucked up by the roots. It was Dwight L. Moody that I believe put it like this. When a man is born once, he'll have to die twice. When a man is born twice, he'll only have to die once, and he may not have to die that time. But these are twice dead. And that means they are physically dead, actually, then they're twice dead in the sense that they're spiritually dead. The body's going to have to die so that actually they're dead in trespasses and sins, and yet they're trying to lead others. What a picture this is of the apostate, by the way.